Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 392. We are in the middle of the first Chedesh Adar, month of Adar, month of joy in this Shanamu uh, Beres and this leap year where there are two months, a double dose of joy. This program is dedicated by Shoshana Grosbard in loving memory of her dad, Chaim Yeshua, on his yard site on the 12th of Adar. So, we will begin with the, the Parsha Kisisa, Living with the Time, lessons from this unique chapter. We'll talk about Purim Cotton, which is this week, it's called the Small Purim, and uh, as well as other interesting timely questions and some follow-up. So, let's begin with this week's chapter. There are many, many lessons in Parsha's Kisisa. But the one that stands out most, and perhaps is closest to our heart, is the one that the Rebbe delivered 30 years ago, in the year 1992. It was the last Fabrengen that the Rebbe would edit, completely edit, as he would do every week, and, full, and published in Sefer HaSichas, Tovshin Nun Beis. I had the merit to prepare that Sichet. So let me just sum up some key lines. At the time, we didn't know what would be coming a week and two days later, nine days later. The last Fabring was actually Vayakel. But Vayakel, the Rebbe, didn't end up editing the full version. He only edited a few words in the summary of the Fabring. So it was Monday, Chavzayin Adar, in the week going into Pekudeh, between Vayakel and Pekudeh, when the stroke happened 30 years ago. So this would be the Fabreng Kisisa, the last Fabreng that I've fully edited. And he began the Fabreng like this, and you can look it up, and I definitely recommend reading it. He says that this chapter stands out from all chapters, even though every chapter is unique, that it includes the whole Seder Ishtashlis, the whole order, the whole cosmic order, the whole order of life, from the high points to the low points to reconciliation. And he refers to specifically the three main events that happened. The Jews received the Torah, the first tablets. Then they built the golden calf, the lowest descent, and the tablets were shattered. And then Moshe goes back on the mountain and after 80 days succeeds in, getting God, in gaining God's forgiveness. And that's Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. And through the Sikha, the Rebbe talks about these three stages that include everything from the high to the low to transformation. When you read it, it stands out, even if you didn't know the events. But then, nine days later, and the subsequent events after that, leading to Gimel Tammuz, you look back and read the Sikha, it's prescient in its uh, foresight, in its, like, in a way, almost like a sachakal, a summary of, of everything from the high to the low to the transformation, giving us also direction and strength. Which is interesting because we all go through life, the cycles of life are not one stationary flat line. They're constantly cycles. Like the Rebbe Rashab says, a galgal it's like a spinning wheel. There's points when you're at the top, there's the wheel comes down to the bottom, then it returns to the top. And the language of Chassidus, the Neshama comes down to this world. It's a tremendous descent, a radical 
descent for the soul to go from its pure spiritual environment where it doesn't have any issues of this material world and all the challenges and difficulties. I'm talking about health and death, corruption, duplicity, and all that comes with it, war, pain, suffering. It comes into this world, but there's a purpose to transform this world. So there you have three stages. You start in a high sublime level, come down to a low level with the goal of transforming it which is really, in essence, what we should be doing now as we are after Gimel Tammuz. So there is a certain concealment, a deep concealment. We don't yet have the Geula Amitiz Vashlema, but there's a purpose to it. The purpose is to elevate and transform the world in which we live, the life in which we live. So Kisisa has that general principle, which really can be found in many places. But here the Rebbe captured it and how it reflects these three key steps Again, I recommend highly reading this this week, especially apropos to this time of the year and the events that happened 30 years ago. So that's a general lesson, what we learned from this chapter, which is that the narrative continues, though that times that there seem, may seem difficult, may seem even to some hopeless. There's no such thing as hopeless. It's a journey, and we continue the journey, and we will arrive at the destination, which is the Gula Amitiz Vashlema, the final destination, so just as the Jews, when they went out of Egypt, and Egypt was one of those lows. Before that, they were in a high, in the sense when the, the patriarchs, the Ovis and the Mois, then they went into this deep bondage and genocide called Golis Mitzrayim, and they came out, the Rechuz Gadol, with great treasures, with great plenty, leading to Matan Teda, leading to the building of the Mishkan, leading to the Promised Land. So you look through history, you'll see these cycles, and these cycles reflect themselves and are mirrored in our own personal lives in microcosm. So it's a, it's a very powerful lesson to always keep in mind no matter where you are in life. It's a journey to another place. We're always on our way. Even though the 42 journeys, only the first journey was out of Egypt, but they're all called going out of Egypt because we're going out of the constraints, the dire straits, and going toward the promised land, both in a cosmic level, on a personal level, on a collective level. So with that, let me go to a few questions that were asked about this chapter. Is there a connection between the golden calf and the giant bull sculpture, bull sculpture, sculpture on Wall Street, which symbolizes money and greed? I would say definitely so simply because the golden calf, which is what they built in this week's chapter, represents gold, represents everything that you worship that isn't God. Sometimes it could be literally, God forbid, Aveda Zara, which means idolatry, but Aveda Zara, Aveda Shazara Lai, anything that's not godly is already going the wrong place. So money today is the golden calf for some. In many ways, money itself can be a great blessing. But if it's not used properly, and if you think that it's my own, I'm a self-made person, it's my own power, and you deny God's blessings in it, then it can become a golden calf. The same thing with other materialism and other things that we worship. So basically in life, you, really, you can either worship yourself or you worship something greater than you are. And that, in a sense, is the, broad, the broader symbolism of the golden calf, which was why it was such a grave sin because essentially it was denying the very presence of God and God's commandments, 
which they just had heard 39 days earlier, that you shall not have false gods. Why does God care if you, have, if you want to be foolish? Because essentially, as soon as you have a God that's on your terms, you're denying the truth and the reality of a true God beyond us, not something that's just on your terms. That's the whole point of it, that we're accountable and we answer to something beyond and greater than us. Okay. The next question in this week's chapter. If the 13 attributes of mercy say that God is slow to anger, why was God so quick to anger when he saw people building and worshipping a golden cow or golden calf? Very good question. But think about a moment. When did God reveal the 13 attributes of compassion? When Moses, when Moshe was on the mountain praying for forgiveness for them building the golden calf. In other words, there's an agreement they had. The, the, the mountain Torah was marriage. A marriage between God and the people. Yem chasunos is a mountain The Jews, within less than 40 days later, betrayed God. They built a golden calf. Essentially a total betrayal, adultery. So it was a total betrayal. So of course, the husband gets upset. Now of course, kav because God doesn't get upset in the physical sense of the word, but essentially he breached the trust between God and the people. And that's what God essentially said to Moshe Rabbeinu when he came up on the mountain asking forgiveness. He says, what do you want me to do? I didn't, they did this to me. They did this to us. And this cause and effect, there's consequences when people betray. And it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't inadvertent. inadvertent. It was very deliberate. And that's exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu was be appealing to God and beseeching him. I need you to give me some hope. I need you to reveal to me an ability that even when people make a mistake, they can correct it. Essentially, I need you to not anger quickly, which means spiritually means not to just respond and go out of Seder Ishtashas. Yes, in the cosmic order, it goes like this. You put your hand in fire, your head gets burnt. That's essentially what God was telling Moshe Rabbeinu. There's an order to things. Moshe was saying, but you're the one that created the hand and you created the rules. I want you to go to a place that back into the engine room higher than these rules, higher than the structure, higher than these very cause and effect and action and reaction elements in existence. And that's when he, he actually succeeded and evoked and invoked from God the 13 attributes, the secret attributes of compassion. And ultimately, forgive them. Forgiveness, the power of tshuva, the power of the holiest day of the year. So you could say, well, God didn't know that he has that ability. But for whatever reason, we need to have the partnership, the prayer. Of course, God could have also had that, that the Maidech Af, even if Moshe had not expected it, Moshe had not appealed and beseeched God for it. But that's the order of things. God puts things into motion, says, here's how I created existence. There's a guidebook. There's an operator's manual. Here's how you're supposed to live. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. If you don't do something, if you, if you do what I'm saying and don't do what I told you not to do, the machine called life will work perfectly. But if you do transgress, you're bringing upon yourself, like the hand getting burnt. And yet, Moshe was able to elicit something deeper, the ability 
for compassion, the ability for forgiveness. So that exactly is what came as a result of Moshe Rabbeinu's prayers and Moshe Rabbeinu praying and beseeching God. When you think about it, it's a very powerful um, message in itself, and especially when you read the chapter, this week's chapter, Kisisa, there's rarely a chapter where you see such intimacy, how Moshe Rabbeinu is speaking with God, the love, the care, the gentleness, but also with the firmness. It's a very moving chapter when you envision, just envision Moshe standing before God and putting himself on the line. Erase my name from this book if you don't forgive them. He broke the tablets earlier in order to also to help for the forgiveness because the tablets were like the contract, as Rashi says, the ksuba. So he could claim to God and say, they, they heard the commandment, don't have false gods, but they didn't receive it yet. They didn't sign the contract. Moshe Rabbeinu putting himself on the line in every possible way. Extremely moving. And look what he ultimately accomplished, the greatest thing of all, hope. The birth of hope, which explains why Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. It's actually born from this chapter. And going back to the initial points we made earlier, that it carries the whole story of life. That's the story of life. None of us are perfect. So we begin our lives pure children, innocent. And then things happen. We lose our innocence, disappointments. Things are broken. Dreams are shattered. Betrayals. Violations. We sometimes betray ourselves. So you can think, okay, that's it. No. Like Moshe Rabbeinu, the Moshe within each of us, there is hope. But you have to fight for it. And you have to push for it. It doesn't come automatically. It comes with work. And many of us give up. Because we think we can't see it through. Or, you know, it's too late for me. I'm damaged goods. God forbid. That's the key underlying message. So that brings us to the next question. What does the Parsha mean when it says Moshe's face was beaming with a light so bright he had to wear a mask, a masvet, so the light didn't hurt people's eyes? Do we accept this as pshat or is it a metaphor? Is there a connection between Moshe covering his face and the masks we wear on Purim, meaning to say that we are on a very holy level on Purim, so our faces radiate light, and by extension also our COVID masks, because we are on a very holy level these days because Mashiach's arrival is so imminent? Okay, interesting correlations. So let's talk about this mask. So when Moshe comes back down from the mountain, on Yom Kippur, with his second set of tablets, his face, was shining with such a glow that people couldn't look at him. So he made masfa, he had a mask, a covering. In Sfarim, it talks about, in Farshim, in commentaries, the simple reason was his face was tremendous shining. But what was the reason for it? And what was the purpose of the mask? So actually, in that same sikha, Kisisa Nunbeis, I believe, at the end, he talks about it with footnotes from the Tzamech Tzedek and from both in Nigla and Chassidus that talk about essentially the concept of Tzimtzum. Whenever there's a great light and you want recipients to receive it, you have to have some form of shield. Like Hashem Alekim, the sun, and its sheath and its shield is like Hashem and Alekim, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Shariyach Vamuna. So Avai is a bright light, Alekim is midas hadin v'at simtsum. It conceals. 
not just to conceal an end in itself, but to allow us to be able to receive, like a teacher concealing his brilliance and dressing it up in a garment, like a mask, masking it, so to speak, in order for us to be able to receive it. Now, why did Moshe's face suddenly glow like this? So the simple reason is because he achieved a level that he did not achieve earlier. The second tablets, even though on one hand, they were not like the first tablets, that God himself carved. Yet, they hadn't sell the quality of tshuva now, because they came after the fall, after the breach, so they in a sense have something more permanent and stronger, and that's why the Gemara says that if we didn't receive the second tablets, we would not have the Teresh Shabal Peh, Medrashim, and so on. So it increased so much more. Samachvav, he explains, Chaitanisker, a person who sins benefits. It was due to the sin of the golden calf. And there he explains at length that it's not the sinner benefits, it's the tshuva that benefits, and the breaking of the tablets. And then the second tablets introduced a whole new dimension. So Moshe himself was also elevated. And now he became this great leader. I heard that Rabbi Soloveitchik came to the Rebbe on the Rebbe's 30th anniversary of his leadership. It was Yutzvah Tov Shemem. It was a big event. He came to see the Rebbe. They were good old friends from back in Europe. And uh, the Rebbe stood up for him. I mean, it was very dramatic. So he spent, uh, he was a while at the Fabrengen. So when he stood up to leave, the Rebbe stood up for him. On his way back, he told Rabbi Shechter, who was his, uh, who was his student, and had brought him, Rabbi Shechter said, what was your impression? He said that when I knew the Rebbe back in Berlin, he was a Talmud Chochem, a scholar, a Torah scholar, and now he became a leader. And he said that when Moshe Rabbeinu, when he received the Torah on Har Sinai, he was a Talmud Chochem, he learned Torah received the Torah. When he came back with the second Luchas, then he became a leader because he had protected and saved the Jews, which is a whole other dimension. And that's when Karn Herponov, where his face lit and glowed in that fashion. So it's an interesting uh, addition to this point. Now the connection to Purim, well, Purim is like Yem Purim. Yem Kippur is like Purim. That's what it says in Tukun Ezeir. Chassidus explains, how could you say that? Because Purim has an element of Yom Kippur, and more. Because you can achieve on Yom Kippur, what Yom Kippur is Yechida. You achieve through fasting, and Purim you achieve through a meal. You bring it down into our lives. It's also day, one day, just like Achaz Boshan, Yom Kippur explained the Chassidus. So you could say, perhaps, I never saw it anywhere, it's an interesting connection, that Purim has that element as well, like a mask that Moshe wore when he came back, when he came down from the mountain, which was on Yom Kippur. So perhaps there's a connection that each of us have that glow, and the mask, in a way, is a certain mask. Again, I never saw that anywhere, but it could be that it says some places. As far as the COVID masks, it's a whole other story. I don't want to say we'd attribute it to anything of this level at all. If, if anything, masks that did help um, to protect from disease or from passing on germs... So that's more of a medical thing. I wouldn't compare it to the mask or the mask that Moshe wore in order, that, in order for there to be able to receive this high level of glow. So I wouldn't put it in that category at all. Without getting into the controversy whether masks help or they don't help, or whether we need them today or not, the politics of it, 
But that's uh, essentially the Vartir. Now, can you learn a lesson from every mask? Of course you can. You know, but the bottom line is, the key thing is the mask of Moshe Rabbeinu, and perhaps the masks of Apurim, which is not a mitzvah, it's a custom, but, the, but it's a custom, a mini gesol, so it has deeper meaning. Okay, one final question. Why was it necessary for God to make a second set of tablets for the Ten Commandments instead of just repairing the, bro- the first broken ones, the first broken set, like putting together a jigsaw puzzle or putting together broken shards? <clears throat> okay, it's a good question, but when you study the significance of these two tablets, you understand immediately why. So first of all, this wasn't just, okay, the breaking of a tablet, let's put them back together. It was a whole new dimension. It was the breaking of the tablets was a, a result of a great grave sin. Moshe Rabbeinu, as I said, Rashi brings from Medrash. He broke the tablets because it was like tearing the contract so you can say to God, the Jewish people never received this contract of yours. So to go put it back together was not the goal. The goal was that there should be achieving forgiveness and tshuva. And that's symbolized in a completely separate set of tablets. In addition, there's something about shivre duchas themselves. In the Arn, in the tabernacle, in the sanctuary, in the Mishkan, in the Holy Ark, weren't just the, set, the luchas, the second luchas, there was also the broken shards of the first luchas. Why? Because we need to remember also that which is broken. Because the first tablets were definitely on spiritually in a higher level. Because they're like the level of a tzaddik. The second tablet symbolized tshuva. And you need both. You need to have a remember of what a tzaddik is, but also the broken part of it, how things break. And then a second set of tablets that reminds us of what means becoming whole. It wasn't just fixing the broken tablets, it was creating a whole new dimension. The place where Balchuva stand, Tzadikim Gurim don't even have the capacity to stand there. So that's a second set of tablets. If you took the first one and fixed it, then it would be like one thing. And you really do want to have both dimensions to the point where Mashiach comes, Mashiach, Osa Mashiach, Osa Mashiach, La Sovet Tzadikai B'tiyufta. Mashiach will also cause the Tzadikim to do tshuva. Because the quality of tshuva over the the order, the Adam Yosher Helech, the regular order, regular, it's not regular, but the order of just following what God wants, which brings Er Yosher, direct light into this world, and Tshuva, the Milo Er Chazer, the quality of Er Chazer, of refractive light, one that is trans- by, through transforming the darkness, you get a whole different dimension, a whole different quality of light and energy. And we want the, quali- and we want the benefits of both. Okay, let's move over to Purim Cotton. This week is Purim Cotton. Purim Cotton is the name used because there are two others, and Purim is celebrated in the second other, as the Gemara says in, in Megillah Davov. It talks about it. When there'll be a Shanamu Beres, a year of two others, when do you celebrate Purim? So there's actually a consideration, it should be in the first Purim, because there's a mitzvah, Ema Virnala mitzvah. So as soon as there's a mitzvah, you have to try to grab it first. You don't push it off. So that would seem to indicate the first month. But then the conclusion is no. Mismach Gula the Gula, because the second month is closer to Pesach. So we do the Purim 
the full Purim on the second month. In the times of Beis Hamidosh, where they sometimes declared the, the leap year in the middle of Adar, and they already did Purim in the first month because they did not know it would be a leap year, it says that they would do a Purim, the full Purim in the second month for this, for this reason. But here's the question someone's asking. Did the original Purim happen in a leap year? And if so, was it in the first or second Adar? So there's an interesting Yerushalmi. The Yerushalmi says, <clears throat> Yerushalmi Megillah, Aleph Hey, 1-5. There, and the, according to some of the commentaries, explains that that year was a, the year of Purim was actually a year of Shana Mubaris. And according to some, that would mean that Purim would have been some say the first month of others, some say the second month. The different commentaries that explain it. But we already have many that, that, that interpret the Gemara not that way because it creates a lot of problems when you start thinking about that element of, of uh, Shanamur Betis. Because if that's the case, if it was the first month, then why don't we do it the first month? So there are those that interpret the Yerushalmi otherwise. You have a Yadis Dvash, Drasha, Chelik Beis, Tu Seven, Chsam Sefer Erechayim, Kuf Samach Gimel, 163. There's also the Chsam Sefer has a uh, Megillah Sester. There's a Ben Yishchai in the Sefer Ben Yishchai, the first Drusha on Shabbos Zacher. And the Mukha Erechayim from the Mukhachar on Chelik Tof, on Tof Reish Tzadik Zayin. Simit Tof Reish Tzadik Zayin. So they talk about it and basically come to the conclusion that either it was not a Samu Beres, it was not a, uh, a leap year, and even if it was, it was celebrated in the second month. Now, as far as uh, the Gemara in Bavli, clearly Bavli does not accept that, because the Bavli says clearly that we celebrate the second month. If Purim was... If that year was Mubedas and it was in the first month, how could you disagree with that? And the Gemara says, So most likely the Gabavli does not hold that it was a leap year. And according to these commentaries that I just cited, it's not a contradiction because Yerushalmi not necessarily saying it was a leap year. It's talking more that it could have been a leap year, according to one explanation, but it ended up being not one. In other words, it was, it was scheduled to be one, but it ended up not being one. And, and if you look in the Gemara Yerushalmi, you see it's not explicit. It's an interpretation that you can interpret that way. Okay. What are some of the customs we do on Purim Katan? So there are customs. Firstly, we don't say Tachnun. We, um, we also uh, stay away from eulogies. And in general, it's a day that you remember some simcha, some simen of simcha. Now, some do a little more. Some say you can do things. But obviously, the main Purim is... Purim Gadl, which would be in the second month of Adar. Okay. Next question is about, the, since we're talking about the leap year, let's go into the leap year. Dear Rabbi Jackson, Rabbi Jackson, a Jewish leap year, a Jewish calendar leap year is called a Shana Muberes, a pregnant year. Do you recall if the Rebbe ever said anything making the connection between a leap year and women having children? Since I personally feel there is a connection, I would like to bless the community that all couples that want to have children but are having difficulties, may God Almighty bless them that they have healthy children and abundant parnosa. 
livelihood and may the Shana Mubaret, this pregnant year, give them the extra energy and blessings if needed. I am placing money in a tzedakah box as I write this to make a keli for the bracha. Okay, amen to that. I don't recall the Rebbe speaking about it, even though that doesn't mean he didn't. It just means I don't remember. It's an interesting correlation as well. Um, but why they call it a pregnant year is because a year that has an additional month. So it's like a, a year that's carrying a child. It's not just an additional day. It's a whole new month of other. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago. The reason is to reconcile between the lunar and the solar. So thinking about it, the lunar and the solar represent Zah and Malchus, Zachar and Nekeva, husband and wife. It could very well be, as we reconcile it, that it has an element of birthing, of a new month. So even though it's coming to compensate for a def- deficit of 11 and a half days over the years it starts accumulating, the 11 and a half day di- discrepancy between a solar and lunar year, but there is also an element, as the Rebbe explains, it's not just supplementing, it's not just filling a, a, a void, but actually add something far more, an extra month, an extra month of joy. So perhaps you could connect it. Again, I have not seen a source for it, but if anybody sees something, please let me know, and I'll share it with the public. Okay. Something that happened this past week is Alyssa's is the next question or the next discussion, and that is that the library of Agudas Chid Chabad, which is the library of all the Rabbeim, all the manuscripts and all the collections from all the Rabbeim that the Rebbe was so, so passionate about, explaining how the Friedrich Rebbe, all the Rabbeim, this is like a non-Nafshik Sovet Yehovah, this is the, the spirit of the Rabbeim is engraved in their words and letters, but the library, of course, is a lot more than just the manuscripts and writings of the Rabbeim. So this uh, past week was a new revelation that everything was scanned and you could find it all online now the actual copies of all the manuscripts. But one of the maybe the most precious item, or at least the, one of the most unique items in the, in the library, and who's to say what's most unique, but definitely stands up there, is the Baal Shem Tov Siddur. So someone writes, Rabbi Jacobson, I came across an article this week with a link to view the entire Baal Shem Tov Siddur, right? You could see the whole say, the Siddur now. I found myself late at night praying and reading all sorts of prayers by night, feeling elated at the opportunity to view and read from the same Siddur as the Baal Shem Tov. Please, can you discuss this Siddur in your weekly podcast? What's the background? How do, we, how do we even have it? Did our Rebbe use it? Is it appropriate to view the Siddur? Should we be reciting prayers from it at any time? I felt, I felt it was so special to have cases to something that directly had the eyes of the Bashemtiv on it for a long time, and essentially prayer is what we're all about. Thanks. So it's already been written up in detail, the history of the Seder. I'll just mention a few key points. The Baal Shem Tov, his own Seder, there's actually, you find in it, the Friedrich Rebbe wrote up a whole Rishima. When he first saw the Seder, he saw it by his father, the Rebbe Rashab, who someone, had, someone who, was, who had inherited, sent to the Rebbe Rashab on loan for a while. And the Friedrich Rebbe says he saw it there, and then he saw it another two times. And when he did, he actually meticulously, he sat in a room, he says quietly, he bathed this completely quietly and, um, and marked down all the unique things of the Siddur, including the pages and including the fact that you find tears on certain pages and even blood, which most likely is of the Baal Shem Tev, and the tears of the Baal Shem Tev, as the Friedrich Rebbe writes it up in his Rishima. The details of the Friedrich Rebbe's Rishima have already been published. You can look it up online. 
if you need a link, um, just search for Baal Shem Tov Siddur and you'll find quite a few articles that are written in detail. Now, as far as the Siddur itself, according to the history that we know, so the Baal Shem Tov, after he passed away, it went, went to his son, Tzvi, who then in turn went to his youngest son, who was named of Yisrael, and from there, it went to, was meant to go to, uh, it, it, clearly it was, went to, uh, the, to Mordechai from Chernobyl. The whole story that he, the, the people said that Rabbi Yisrael, grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, left it for him. He ended up having it. And from there, it went to Yishtal Shuz, that again, you could read the details. Ultimately, as I said, when it came on loan to the Rebbe Rashab, so the Friedrich Rebbe had access to it. And he dealt with a business person a wealthy person who had inherited it from previous generations, and ultimately the Friedrich Rebbe bought it from him. That's details, again, are all written up. And the Friedrich Rebbe took it with him when he went with all his manuscripts and he came to America. It's ever since, it's in, the Rebbe, it's in the library of the Friedrich Rebbe, the library of Agudas Chzidich Chabad. The Rebbe, when he talked about the Svarim in Tav Shemem Hei in 1985, the whole chapter with the books, he mentioned the Baal Shem Tov Sefer, Siddur, and he said that he always was very wary and very afraid to come close to it. He said the Friedrich Rebbe kept it very secret, meaning very private, and the few times that he allowed people to see it, it was with the conditions to go to the mikveh, v'chulu v'chulu. So we see from this the sanctity of the Siddur, and we know stories of Bochrim and Temchet Mimim who had seen the Siddur by the Rebbe Rashab, and then later by the Friedrich Rebbe. And yes, it was with the condition that it would be seen only, it was you know, to go to the mikveh and fast that day. That was the Friedrich Rebbe's condition as well. So now that we have this revelation, clearly I would suggest that people looking at it should do the same, go to the mikveh and perhaps fast, understanding the sanctity of it. And there's very interesting things in the Siddur as the Friedrich Rebbe lays out in detail, the Rebbe also has a reshim of some of the things. One of the one, my famous ones is that you'll see the Baal Shem Tev changes in the Birchus Samozin. He changes Agdusha, Birchus Samozin, I believe, of, uh, of uh, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Tev. He changes Hagdusha. You see, Hagdusha, Archava. Hagdusha with Hagdusha, not with a Kuv, but with a Gimu. Yodam le'apsuch Hagdusha v'archava. So he says, with a Gimel Hagdusha. I mean, with the emphasis, Gadush, or to filling it to the brim, Malay v'Gadush, that it should spill over. That's one of the changes you see from the Baal Shem Tov, as well as other fascinating things, including the names of people, the Shmakelenu, in the Shemanesa, you see names of people that Baal Shem Tov was asked to pray for. You see those names written in there. The Friedrich Rebbe lays out and spells out when you see actually manuscript, the handwriting of the, of the Rebbe, of the Baal Shem Tov, even pointing out that the Mittler Rebbe had a similar handwriting as the Baal Shem Tov, and that's how he was able to identify sometimes the Baal Shem Tov's handwriting. So, bottom line is, let, let, us, let us all use this opportunity to look into the Siddur. By all means, you can daven in it, print it out. It's not the original Siddur, it's a copy, similarly a, a, a digital copy, but still, it's quite powerful, especially when you hear the history and how the Rabbeim so cherished it and the Friedrich Rebbe ultimately securing it forever and ever, the Baal Shem Tov 
Yeah. So I don't know if I have all the words, but I think this captures some of it, the awesomeness of it. And may it all, may our prayers through the Baal Shem Tov's um, intercedence and efforts and all the tears and blood, sweat and tears of the Baal Shem Tov and all the Rabbeim, especially through the Siddur, pierce the heavens and all the blessings and all the needs that we have. Ultimately, the greatest need, Mashiach, Sidkenu, the Gula, Amitiz, Vashleim. So now that we've covered that, it's like feel I feel somewhat odd to move to the next topic because we're moving from Kedush Akadoshim, Holy of Holies, to um, to back to Earth in a way. So let me find something that seems fitting before I go to the next topic. Okay. So ultimately, the Baal Shem Tov interceded and intervened and especially looked to, f- to create Avis Yisrael wherever he was able to. So I think maybe that could be a good segue. So here's a, a discussion between a couple having a disagreement. And the question they're asking is how we resolve it. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I have an agreement with my wife that every morning in the, in the first thing if the first thing I do when I wake up is give tzedakah, charity, then she will cook a nice breakfast. The arrangement has been working out nicely the past few months. Her preparing breakfast also saves me extra time in the morning, so I won't be late to work. The other morning, I walked into the kitchen and no breakfast was ready, and my wife was sitting there reading a book. I asked what was going on, and she said, you didn't give tzedakah yet, so I'm not starting to cook breakfast. I replied, yes, I did give zakah, but how? But now it doesn't matter because even if you start cooking now, by the time it's ready, I'll have to leave for work. And why do you think? And why do you think I didn't give zakah? She said, every morning she knows when I give zakah because she hears the coins clinking in the pushkin, and today she didn't hear it. I became very angry and yelled at her. I said, as a matter of fact, when I reached into my wallet this morning, I couldn't find any coins, so I gave a dollar instead, and it made. It's made of paper, so it doesn't clink when you put it in. And how dare you misjudge me? I left to work without eating and slammed the door and went my way out. My wife texted me later saying she was sorry for misjudging me, but now she's upset that I yelled at her and raised my voice and she doesn't feel safe and she wants me to move into my parents' house for a week or two until she figures out what she wants to do next. I think I had a right to be upset, especially after I kept my agreement and, what, and did what I promised. But I'm aware that when I yelled at her, I crossed the line and was wrong. I tried to apologize for my actions, and she wouldn't hear it. Why am I supposed to accept her apology, but she won't accept mine? I think what she did was worse by misjudging me, and what I did by yelling, how dare you cause me to be late for work? What is a good way to resolve this? I say again, I feel very quite awkward and uncomfortable to read this after we just spoke about the Boshemtev Siddur. Because initially, when I read this question, it sounds very petty and childish almost. But the fact that you say that your wife has moved out, is asking you um, to move into your parents' house until she figures out, tells me that with this smoke, this fire, that there's more going on here than just this disagreement, this breakfast agreement that you guys had. So since I don't know all the details, I only know what you share. It's hard for me to fully comment on it, but to me it sounds like there's something more happening here. And the question is, what is that? 
So I would suggest that you talk to a third party, saying now to the husband who wrote this to me, and a third party hopefully that you and your wife both trust, and so he can go speak with her as well, and figure out what's really happening here. Because if it's just this one infraction, yes, we say, for, we say, I'm sorry, both of you made a mistake. I'm not getting into, there's no justification for yelling and slamming a door. You know, it's, 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 it's important to understand that people are human beings. So people make mistakes and there's forgiveness and you move on. But because there may be more to this, so instead of just ignoring it, I would definitely look into what more can be happening here. Regarding the actual issue, let me just say this. We talked about the Bashamt of Siddur. We talked about Chassidus. We talked about Chassidus lifting us up to a high level. In life, especially in marriage, is not a conditional thing where you give tzedakah and I'll make you breakfast. It could be that your wife felt that was the only way to motivate you. But it shouldn't be tit for tat. Either way, your wife should make you a nice breakfast no matter what, and you should give tzedakah no matter what. So I think going forward, maybe this is a lesson, that instead of doing this like, you do this and I'll reward you, or vice versa, you should give tzedakah every morning, and even more than tzedakah. Maybe you and your wife should learn something together. Because to me, it's an indicator that may be more going on, as I mentioned before. So you should be giving tzedakah no matter what. She should be making breakfast no matter what. Whether it clinks or not, that is a question of there's a coin or a dollar. I understand that. And both of you should give the other benefit of the doubt. That's what you do when you love someone. You give the other the benefit of the doubt. Especially, we're not talking here about some serious thing, if your wife accused you of something really, God forbid, or you, your wife. We're talking about a decent and civil behavior, especially people who are married to each other. So that's my overall response to this issue here. We're on this topic, so let's go back to a timely question, which I didn't want to read before, but now I'll read it now. Is it appropriate to watch the Super Bowl and the Olympics? This week is two big, are two, this week is a two big sporting events, the Olympics and the Super Bowl football game. My wife says I'm not allowed to watch the Super Bowl because it's chukas goyim. means the ways, the laws of the goyim, so-called the, the paths, the, the customs of the, of the Gentiles. I could understand saying it's not appropriate to watch the Olympics because some of the athletes dress in costumes that are not sneers, not modest, according to our community standards. But I don't see anything wrong with watching a football game. My understanding of the prohibition of chukas goyim is if goyim do certain things for their avodah for their idolatry, then we aren't allowed to copy it. For example, if certain galochim, priests, wear a particular garment or have a certain type of hairstyle, we shouldn't copy it. But we can't start saying everything is wrong because it's chukas goyim. Goyim wear warm coats in the winter, so we should, should we dafka not wear coats? Should we specifically not wear coats? Can you please give can you please give an intuition into what is and what isn't a prohibition of chukas goyim? Thank you. And let's go Cincinnati over Los Angeles. Okay. <laughs> so it's interesting. While you're watching this program, you're probably not watching the Super Bowl because it's happening at the same time. It reminds me years ago, in the late 90s, 1999, 2000, I was doing a weekly live radio show. It was on WEVD. Um, it was like 6 to 7 every Sunday. Now, of course, Sunday Super Bowl, I didn't cancel my uh, class, but I remember I opened up and saying that I want to apologize to the NFL and to all those uh, that may 
uh, that if I'm cutting into their uh, ratings or their viewership, obviously I was being somewhat uh, sarcastic. So I remember dealing with this issue. And ironically, of all things, WEVD, a little while later, was sold to ESPN, which is a sports network. And that's when my radio show came to an end because I wasn't ready to do sports radio and sports talk. So that was that. So I have a little personal experience. I have no grievances. I never sued the NFL or football or, this, or ESPN, just as an aside. Okay, look, let's, let's put this in context. If we're talking about the standard of the Teda and we know the standard of the Teda is that every second that you don't learn Teda is called Bittl Teda, which is considered a grave sin. That's a fact. According to the Al-Tareb and Tanya, Rabbeinini is, he never did and never will do a sin all his life. The Rebbe already explains then how could everybody be a Benini? She explains in that moment, he's in that state that can't do a sin. But the standard is that you have total control of thought, speech, and action. Even if you can't control your temptations, can't control the faculties of the animal so you can control its expression. So based on that standard, Super Bowl, generally you should be learning Tater all the time. Now, on a practical, realistic level, is everybody on that level? Clearly not. We're not condoning it, not going to now sanction it, like the Rebbe once said. Everybody has their flaws, but don't make a philosophy out of it. Even if it's real, reality that people cannot stand on that standard, we don't make a philosophy out of it. You do something, fine, everybody has their uh, place where they relax. Can you go to a museum? Can you take a walk in the park? Can you go to a concert? I mean, there are many questions that you can ask about things that are not necessary an isr, because there's definitely not an isr. Kukas Goyim will talk about in a moment. There are things that are prohibited. And, it's def- and, and then there are things that are a mitzvah. But there's a lot of divrei shus, which is a very broad spectrum of things that are permitted. Can you go to a restaurant? So there's nothing, nothing usr about going to a restaurant. Is it the highest standard? Not necessarily. Obviously, we're talking about a kosher restaurant, etc. So it all comes down to individuals being practical and prudent. I wouldn't say this to your wife necessarily. She perhaps has higher expectations and higher standards. But I'm sure that she's not learning Torah 24-7, even though a woman may not be mechuyiv in that. But she probably has her outlets. And I'm not saying it to be critical. I'm just saying you have to be in life, also be practical and have a fifth shulchanorach of common sense. So I'm not going to say here that go, go, it's all right, go fine, go watch the Super Bowl. I've had my own uh, shortcomings in many different areas. But I'm also not going to say that, um, that everybody can live up to this high standard all the time, though we aspire to. So clearly you can't go to a Rav and ask him a Shaila and say, should I watch the Super Bowl? Which Rav is going to tell you, go watch the Super Bowl? He'll say, figure it out on your own, don't ask such a question. Like so many other divrei shus, which are so-called the neutral areas, which you can use l'shem shemayim. You can eat a meal, you can eat l'shem shemayim, you can eat it the other opposite way. If a person is going to enjoy sports, they could use it in some way, perhaps learn a lesson from it. But to say it's an isra, I will not say that either. You can't say it's a prohibition. As far as chuk is going, there are halachas about it, there are plenty has been written, what is considered chuk is going 
I don't think watching sports is considered chukas goyim, if I recall correctly. You can check with a rabbi. You gave examples. There are other examples. For example, there's the concept of dinah de machusa dinah, things that we follow, the laws of the land, as long as it doesn't breach a halacha. Is paying, paying taxes chukas goyim? Like you said, the customs of the land, we dress, we don't dress the way Jews dressed 3,000 years ago. We do dress more or less, modestly of course, in the customs of the land. We speak the language. I'm speaking English right now. That's not chukas goyim. Or else no, we, no one would ever speak English. So there are many things we do that I would not put into that category. In spirit, is it what, what Teirach Siddhas wants us to do, is watch games? As I said, said before, in spirit, not. In that sense, you could say in the spirit of chukas goyim. In other words, don't just do things because everyone else is doing it, because the world is doing it. There are plenty of Jews, obviously, that watch these games as well. That doesn't necessarily doesn't make it uh, appropriate. I'm just saying that as a, as a statement. So I think you need to have a combination of knowing what your standards are and then seeing where do you stand in that context and trying your best and doing your best. As far as the Olympics go, we spoke about this, I believe, four years ago, the last time Olympics, or two years ago, the Summer Olympics. The Rebbe has his own opinion about the Olympics as being pretty strong opinion that Olympics is rooted in things that are Avedizara, idolatry. So even though the actual games are not that, but the Rebbe had comments about going to Olympics to do Mifzoyim and other things, or even mentioning it. Again, watching an athlete excel is one thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're worshipping the Olympics. So I just want to, however, make that qualification. The Olympics has its own personality. But again, um, sports in general, whether it's a football game or it's a baseball game or other things, the Rebbe has made reference to baseball in some of his sikhs, in um, about the, about the World Series, uh, the Kiddush Hashem that Sandy Koufax made when he didn't pitch on Yom Kippur. And in general, it was not spoken about in a way, obviously dismissive, that a Jew should be learning Tata all the time. But more in that type of context, like when the Rebbe would mention the New York Times or the newspaper, he says, if you don't know what it is, Tavei Lecha Brocha. If you don't know what baseball is, be blessed. Some of us do know. So you see from that that there was a certain, I don't say latitude, but a certain amount of understanding that the things that people do, including sports. You can say the same thing. I think we spoke about this a while back, about having during recess or when children are playing, they play sports. They're not learning Torah all the time when they take. And is there anything wrong with that? No. In camp, and all the sanctioned and condoned by the Rebbe, why? What, nothing wrong with playing sports. It's part of Divrei as long as you do it with good intention. I remember the Shemini Tovshin Men, when Tzivus Hashem began a little after that, the Rebbe gave a whole lesson from playing soccer. He's talking about children, a lesson from playing soccer. So you see the playing sports itself, obviously you can play it in a way you worship it and it becomes an end in itself, or you could see it as part of, first of all, being a healthier person, like an exercise and sports creates a certain camaraderie and all that sports creates, as well as learning lessons from it, as he explains in Tanya, you use it as something that you could use it for something in Gdusha, in holiness. Now, watching could be different because watching, you're not participating, it's not your own thing, but you could also apply somewhat the same idea, lessons that you can learn from it as the Rebbe did from the game of soccer. So that's an additional point which adds to the entire equation here. Okay.
Another question that came in, what is an appropriate relationship between cousins of opposite gender? I am friendly with my female cousin of the same age, 17, but I don't know where the line is drawn. I was told by Mashpia that my relationship with the female cousin is in a gray area. Can you clarify what is considered appropriate? I guess this person didn't get an answer, so wrote again. Hi, Rabbi, I asked this question multiple times in various forms. What are the boundaries that are, when we're being friendly with my female cousin, who's 17, I was told I'm in a gray area. And yet again, maybe it's the same person or another person. I'm currently a bochur in Zal, Rabbi Jacobson. My cousin is 12th grade high school, recently confided in me that she was having some issue and didn't know where to turn. I have some experience both for myself and also although I am still in yeshiva, I have counseled some bochur before. I'm just not sure if I can do this or if this is appropriate. Or is it okay because she chose to speak to me and we are related? Okay. Answer is quite straightforward. We're not talking that I would say no, it's not appropriate, um, even though it's a cousin. Yes, if your cousin had approached you, you don't slam the door in her face. You listen, but then I would strongly recommend to send her to someone that she can speak to. Most best would be a female, either an adult or a professional, to be able to talk to. I don't think it's appropriate. It can lead to un, uh, it can lead to a, 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 a to intimacy that is unnecessary. I don't mean that in an action way. Just not the right way to be in this type of context, especially at that age. The fact that you have experience, that's fine. You want to help other bochum, that's also fine, but I would say it's not appropriate. And that's where I would tell you to stick, create the right boundaries. This also can be done in a friendly way. It does not have to be in a, in a uh, aggressive way. In a friendly way, and I'm sure she will understand. And just in general, to stay away from anything that can lead to other things. This is the way the Taylors approach. Cousins are cousins, but they also have the ability to get married, which means that there is an element of a romantic dimension possible there. Not saying that's the case, but the Shilchus Yichud applies to a situation like that as well. And Yichud doesn't just mean being alone in a room, it also means in spirit of staying away from conversations that deal with such type of matters. Okay. So let's move on to the next question. Okay. In that spirit, there is a follow-up. As I've said, the issue of how should we address sexual abuse and its cover-up continues to come my way. So I do want to continue... And as I said, each week I'll cover a little of it until we finally, hopefully, eradicate it completely and never have to address it again. Dear Rabbi, I heard you read the letter on February 8th, that was last week's program, from the man who, as a boy in camp, was sexually abused by a counselor, and when he reported it to the camp, they kicked him out of camp. He said that he later saw this man was given his name and number, I believe, and was told that he was, that he was known for molesting children. Please tell this man to report this perpetrator to the police as soon as possible. He is likely still molesting children. He should be punished by law for molesting children and prevented immediately from damaging anyone else. Please reach out to him to get that menace off the streets. This should always be the immediate response when someone sees a perpetrator who has not been brought to justice. I was also sexually abused as a child and teenager. Thank you. Well, let me qualify this. It's true. If it's a perpetrator right now that has perpetrated this crime, 
has to be reported. But if it's a perpetrator from many years ago, I did not say not to address it. it has to, the person has to be accountable. But you have to also be careful because it could be far away from it. He's not doing anything close to it. Is there a risk? There's always a risk. But if you're aware of it, definitely look into it. But I wouldn't just go ahead and, and report something from so many years ago to the police. I would first discuss it with some professionals. I want to make it clear, this is not about cover-up. That's not at all where I'm coming from. I'm coming being responsible how to deal with it. It may need to confront that person or maybe need to look into. But you have to find people that are not looking to cover up but looking to be honest and sincere about it. And yes, if a person needs to be accountable, let them be accountable. But I want to emphasize again, I'm not saying it because I believe that we should just forget bygones are bygones. That's not where this is coming from. It's just coming from the right, responsible approach to deal with issues like this. So I'll read one more question in this regard. So let's go back to... Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your episode 386. That's when I spoke initially about this whole topic when I began speaking about it. I asked then about giving honor to my deceased father-in-law after our niece accused him of sexually abusing her. Do we continue to observe his yard site? Do we name our grandchildren after him, etc.? Please, please advise. Thank you and may Hashem continue to give you the strength to keep going with your indispensable and important work. Have a good Chodesh Adar. It's a hard question to answer, to be very honest. If it's been established without, a re- without any doubt, then my approach would be much stronger and sharper. Um, especially if somebody's being hurt, in the pro- who was hurt by him, and the process by honoring him continues to be hurt. If it's not, if it's a question, there too, I'm not suggesting ignore, because if a person's accusing him, she needs to be respected. She or he needs to be respected. So I don't have a black and white answer because I've not seen something that I would say is slam dunk, so to speak. This is what you do, shouldn't do. I would play it by ear, case by case, seeing the sensitivities involved. If the one who's accusing him of behaving that way says, no, I, I would really be hurt, I would respect that. And there's no reason to go name someone after him. If some other family member wants to name and doesn't know about it, it's one thing. But I wouldn't uh, necessarily go ahead and do something that hurts somebody. But it's not easy for me to say that because can can you say that he was completely evil and had no redeeming factors? And what happens if another family member does want to name after him even though there were these accusations? So it's a very difficult one. I honestly am being honest that I can't say a black and white answer to it. I ask myself, what would I do in a case like that? I would be sensitive to the parties that are involved. And if something in any way would hurt someone, I'd probably stay away from it. Because I don't, there's not a mitzvah, you could find someone else to name after. But what happens if the child, if your wife, you're saying his father-in-law. Um, so your wife says, I want to name someone after my father. And I don't care what my niece says then I still would try to convince her to be sensitive 
but that can be an issue, and I don't really have a, a full answer to it. Let me think about it some more. Maybe you can get some feedback from people who are listening to this program, and we could take it from there. But I'm glad it's on the table, and I'm not embarrassed to say that I don't always have a black and white answer. And that's why I'm saying what I'm saying. I'd love to hear other thoughts on this matter. Maybe there are, say, halachic precedents, but similar situations where it talks about a Russia, naming someone after a Russia, after a wicked person. I want to look into it some more, but that limp suffices for now. Another person writes in this regard, Rab Simon, on the topic of the disruptive events that occurred recently, the observer realizes that ultimately there's only one Hashem and only Hashem is absolute truth. Hashem makes a world where both good and evil exist and Torah teaches us how to tell the difference. This, the latest test, has its own set of complications and intricacies, but ultimately we're left with the same question as any other societal disruption. Will you bring yourself closer to Hashem or run away from the relationship? For the thinking person, the decision makes, it, makes itself. The decision, for only Hashem is truth. All the questions listed for discussion tonight will bring us a human sense of understanding and closure, but the questions we must live with personally is, do we turn to the media for solace, rehashing issues and studying every word, or turn to Hashem even in the face of baffling contradictions Hashem creates to test us? Written with the greatest of respect for those individuals who are personally involved in this event. So this is quite cryptic. I read it because someone wrote it. I'm not sure what your point is. I do think that if you are referring to the events that we're discussing, I think it's critical to be very unequivocal in saying crime is a crime. People have to be brought to justice. Those that took their own lives in the process, let God judge them and God will figure out what to do with them. But we must always protect victims and survivors in every possible way. And there's no room for cover-up and we need to call out anyone that considers an option to cover up or to minimize such terrible crimes against children. Yes, we turn to Hashem for truth, that's correct. But Hashem's truth is also includes helping and protecting and, and preserving the dignity and integrity of human beings, especially innocent children. Okay, so suffice for now, we will move now to the Chassidus question. So the Chassidus question of this week is, How do we distinguish between appropriate and inappropriate intermediaries, intermediaries between God and us? Let's read the full question. In Lekutah Seichis, Chelik Yud Aleph, volume 11, chapter Yisrei, the first Seichis, the Rebbe explains the greatness of Yisrei's knowledge. The Rebbe brings down the Rambam that Avedah Zara's origins actually came from a place of Seichel. That, yes, idolatry came from a place of logic. That they wanted something to identify with. So they attributed power to the stars that God created, saying that these are God's creations. But the mistake, however, came when they believed that the stars and constellations actually have choice and power of their own as to whom to give to or not. He then says, you have the same idea with angels and intermediaries in, in the other worlds, and that it must be known here as well that all of these things are just an axe in the hand of the woodchopper. Gazan biyada He says that the higher the intermediary, the more likely you are to make such a mistake. 
because the higher it is, the more you can seem, seemingly confuse and say maybe it's a divine hand. What does that mean practically for a person? How are we supposed to understand the idea of intermediaries in our lives? And is this something we are able to, that we are able to relate to practically? If so, what does it look like when a person makes such a mistake, especially with regards to malachim, angels, and other worlds? As this sounds very impractical. The Rebbe begins in the footnote there, the idea of relating to Hashem and not His attributes, a love of which we discussed in the previous weeks. If you could please describe this idea on a practical level, thank you. So one of the reasons we're reading it this week is because it's connected somewhat to the Egel, because some explain that how is it even possible? Because they wanted an intermediary. They thought Moshe was not returning, so they looked for something the intermediary. The Rebbe once actually explained Nasich, interestingly, fascinatingly, that they were looking for a Rebbe. Their mistake was a, a, a grave one. But their, that what was going was they needed something to identify with. But unfortunately, it ended up being a replacement of God. And that's considered idolatry, the worst of all sins. So the answer is the following. God created many, many intermediaries, so to speak. The whole Seydish is essentially a bridge, an interface between us connecting with godliness. But no one should ever forget that all it is is a bridge. It has no power of its own. A teacher teaches a child, gives an example, brings it down on the level of the child, spoon feeding. Nobody thinks the example has power of its own. It's the teacher's way of communicating. So the first thing you have to remember that everything is God. Even when God uses an intermediary, so to speak, it's not because the intermediary has power. He's spoon feeding. It's like the tzimtzum, the kav in the language of Chassidus and Kabbalah. Diminishing or concealing the light and then, then spoon-feeding it, streaming it into the kalim in ways that are tailored that we can receive it. That's the whole point. As soon as you attribute any power to it, that's where the mistake happens. Now, replacing God is a whole other story. We never replace God. Even when God is using these forces for us to be able to relate to Him, we don't give them any power of their own. And we definitely don't replace. And that's idolatry. Full idolatry is complete replacement. I, instead of God, here I'm serving something that's, that's God's creation. If you understand the kegazim biyad that is God, the woodchopper, using an axe, it's an axe. And that's why in Kabbalah there's so, so much care taken in explaining the idea of the spheres. The spheres, the ten spheres. These are the divine attributes. To understand them as simply as instruments of God. Channels. There are different ways of explaining it. Some say it's literally like an axe, like an instrument. Some say it's divine energy that's expressing divine energy and chesed and gvura and so on. But no matter how you interpret it, it's always a love of We're always talking to God and not to his attributes. And mistakes have been made. That's why Chassidus makes a very big fuss about it and emphasizes it. So the line has to be drawn, number one, that there's only one God always. As soon as you hear something some deity, God forbid, even shittuf, even partnership. There's no partnership. It's only God. It's God working through his own different channels. Secondly, those channels themselves have no power of their own. They're only because God wants to use those channels. Another key way to a litmus test is what the Alter Rebbe says in chapter 6 in Tanya. I'm teaching it now. I teach Tanya applied every Saturday, every Shabbos, 10 o'clock. It's chapter 6, that Kedusha is defined by Bittl. Everything that's bottled to God is Kedusha. Anything that's not bottled to God, meaning it's not sublimated and not 
standing humble, humble, stand in humility and completely um, subjugated to something higher is called klipa, is called the opposite of Gdusha. Even if it's not an opposing to God, as soon as it's not completely sensing that all I am is really just a transparent channel, a seamless transparent channel, that already is a problem. So when we talk about tzaddikim, demim lebedim, tzaddikim are similar to their creator, or sometimes even associate words that sound like godly words. Isha lekim. It's a man of God, because, not because he's great, because he's bottled, because he's completely self. It's not about him. All he is is carrying God's message to the world. The Shekhinah speaks through his throat. Why? Because it's not him. He's, he's completely bottled. As Moshe was told by Hashem, who gave a man a mouth to speak? It is I. I am your mouth. God opens my lips. So that is critical component. As soon as that doesn't exist, we have a problem. Okay, with that, we'll conclude this, uh, this episode of My Life Chassidah Supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a very pleasant and celebrating Simcha of Adar, Adar Rishin, Purim Katan, and moving day to day with greater joy all the way into the joy of the second Adar and straight into the joy of the Gula Amitis Vashlema. Thank you and be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidah Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidahsupply.com slash donate.